the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Keith Ellison led the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd in 2020. Now, Ellison has a book out that suggests the cycle of police violence in this country can end if we commit to that goal. He'll join today to talk about his ideas and his Detroit roots. We'll also hear today about a Washtenaw County program to soften police response by adding mental health workers to the mix. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. WDET's live broadcast of Detroit Today from the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference is made possible by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us today. Police violence, police brutality is something that we in America are really familiar with. And those of us who are African-Americans are more familiar with it than many other Americans. According to the NAACP, African Americans are five times more likely to be stopped, for instance, by law enforcement. And already, more than 360 people of all different backgrounds have been killed this year in the U.S. after being shot by law enforcement. Think back to 2020, as the pandemic was really getting started, and at the height of the Black Lives Matter protest. Back then, nine out of 10 Americans said racism and police brutality were problems in our country. There was a specific case, of course, that spurred that summer of Black Lives Matter in 2020. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was suffocated by one police officer while three others looked on. And in fact, that's a very sanitized way of saying what happened to George Floyd. Derek Chauvin, the police officer, kneeled on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes until he stopped breathing. Keith Ellison is the Minnesota Attorney General and the lawyer who led the prosecution against the police officers who were involved in George Floyd's killing. And he's got a new book out called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, which documents that case from start to finish and talks about what we could be doing to interrupt this cycle. Break the Wheel is part memoir, part historical document, and part guide to the way that the legal system handles police brutality. And this book leaves us with an awful lot of questions. What does police violence look like? Why is it cyclical? That is, why does it happen with such regularity? And why can't we interrupt it? How do we hold police accountable when they commit violence that sidesteps the boundaries of their work? That's where we begin the conversation today. And with us to discuss it, is Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of Minnesota and a native Detroiter. Keith, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Um, as you know, I was born and raised in Detroit. Yes, you so, were. So <laughs> uh, it's always a pleasure to talk talk with WDT. Yes, uh, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't also note that you are a graduate of the University of Detroit Jesuit High School, which is also yep. my alma mater. So uh, yeah, it's great you to go. have you. you <laughs> so I, I want to start here. You call police violence a cycle. I want to have you talk about what you mean by that. How does police violence show up in American communities and why is it so persistent? Well, you know, I when I started really studying the, the history of this problem, I 
I went back to the 1919 Chicago, uh, uh, what they call it a race riot, uh, when uh, academics uh, pulled together and had an investigative committee to really study what happened with that Chicago 1919 riot that was sparked by, um, you know, a tragic incident between police and community. What happened is that a black boy was uh, swimming in Lake Michigan and his he, and he floated over to the white section of the beach. Mm -hmm. Some people threw rocks at him, caused him to lose his balance and fall off and drown. When when citizens came and said to the police, hey, what are you going to do with that? That they got they got violent treatment. And as a result, um, there was a there was this what they call what history reports as the Chicago race riot. Uh, and then there was the 1935 Harlem one. The 1943 Harlem one. Then there was the Kerner Commission in 1968, mm -hmm. which looked at a whole bunch of uh, disturbances, including the Detroit um, uh, uprising, which occurred the, just the same year before. But then after that, there was the Christopher Commission report that happened after L.A., right, and uh, and Rodney King, and then even up into and including. Uh, the the uh, Ferguson incident, uh, you had President Obama commission a study on the uh, the you know the 21st century policing. So there's this there is this cycle. It's just there, and it it rolls along, and it it causes tremendous social problems, starting with loss of life or loss of safety, mm. but it also has a heavily negative impact on municipal budgets in Minneapolis alone. My city, uh, we paid over a hundred million dollars in police misconduct lawsuits in the last ten years alone. Uh, Detroit has similar numbers. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Cleveland. Every city uh, has has to budget heavily for these cases. And then, of course, we about every you know five to six years. There is a, a tragic incident which sparks a massive uh, public response in terms of protesting and things like that. So, I mean, this is an expensive um, flaw that we have that we won't fix this problem. Causes a lot of trouble. It also reduces trust between law enforcement and citizens, which I believe leads to lesser safety. So that is what the whole book is about. You know, we have this cycle. It is longstanding. It is nationwide and it is expensive in life and in treasure. And we need to fix it. Yeah. Uh, so when police violence happens, let's talk about the most common response from other lawmakers or people in power. And I think that is uh, one of the pivot points uh, on, on this issue, right, that that once something like this happens, there is uh, an inappropriate, really, response to uh, to what's happened, uh, and and in terms of what other officers think and what what lawmakers do. Uh, what's the first thing that happens to a police officer who is accused of committing inappropriate violence against a civilian? Well, on the scene, they call it a critical incident. Once it is apparent that the officer, him or herself, may be may be suspected of wrongdoing uh you know they get their 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 union uh gets together with them um generally speaking and i won't i can't speak for every single case but generally speaking they don't say anything they have their lawyer issue some kind of a a, a, a statement with due regard to their um to their defense uh and uh you know then depending on the level of uh whether there's video or whatever there is uh, uh, you know, the prosecutors start to think about whether to release the videotape, whether to release the information. That process is usually pretty, uh, pretty difficult to manage for people. And then, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, there has to be some sort of prosecutorial decision. That prosecutorial decision may be made by the local authority where it occurred or may be transferred out. There's, there's sort of a unraveling of a number of steps that are going to happen in the immediate aftermath. And quite honestly, you know, uh, we haven't dealt with it very well. Mm. I will commend the Memphis Police Department and County Attorney's Office because they, uh, in the aftermath of the Floyd matter, 
release the videotape fairly quickly, discharge the officers fairly quickly, uh, and um, charge them. And so, you know, it looks, if you look at Memphis, it looks like once these tragic incidents happen, we're now starting to figure out what to do about it. Uh, but for many years, it was just chaos and you had an upset community and you had um, the union saying, hey, our guys didn't do anything wrong and we're not going to deal with any, we're not going to tolerate any sanction against them. And, and that's sort of how those things spin out. Uh, and that pattern gets replayed and played all the time. Mm. One of the things that happened in Minneapolis is that the uh, the Minneapolis Police Department public information officer, the very night that this tragic incident with George Floyd happened, issued a statement saying that George Floyd died in a medical incident. Uh -huh. I didn't that. mention force, didn't mention the people screaming for the life of George Floyd, didn't mention the videotape, didn't mention anything, just sort of a an inebriated person suspected of forgery died in medical in, in police custody due to medical complications. That was it. Mm. And then when the video came out, the contrast couldn't be more stark. Uh, that's one of the things you got to get your information right, because if you get it wrong, uh, you're going to immediately sow distrust and people will feel that a just outcome is not uh, possible and they will take to the streets. Yeah. Uh, and so that's another one of the the fallouts of this kind of thing. Yeah, I'm talking with Keith Ellison. He's uh, the Attorney General of Minnesota, author of a new book titled "Break the Wheel: Ending the Cycle of Police Violence." Uh, Ellison is the person who prosecuted uh, Derek Chauvin and the other police officers in Minneapolis who killed George Floyd uh, in the summer of 2020 sparking uh, the massive uh, Black Lives Matter protest, uh, not just here in Detroit or in Minnesota, but all over the country. Uh, we're talking about how you break the cycle of police violence. How do you interrupt the things that seem to happen and then happen again in our country and have happened for such a, a long time. We want to hear from you, uh, the listeners as well, during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know if you feel like the police are there to protect you or do you fear their presence in your community? Uh, are you someone who has experience with police violence or have you been violated in some other way? by uh, someone who was there to protect and serve. Uh, if you're a police officer, let us know if you've seen other officers step out of line and do things that they shouldn't be doing. What was your response like? What's it like to have to call out other officers for their behavior? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, you can uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Keith, before we get to our listeners, I want to talk just a little about uh, what you did in the George Floyd case or the Derek Chauvin case, and what effect it's had on this problem. As you point out, inside of the police department in Minneapolis, inside uh, the, the the legal establishment in, in Minneapolis, the, the call was not to respond to this with a prosecution. You decided as the attorney general uh, that you would prosecute and you got a conviction for not only Derek Chauvin, but, but some of the other officers. Um, what what message did that send about the way we deal with that? And are you seeing a difference in not only Minneapolis, but other jurisdictions in Minnesota as a result? You know, this question, are we seeing a difference? The answer is yes and no. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the numbers, we have not seen a reduction in deadly force encounters with, with police. We have not really seen the numbers go down, but we have seen laudable efforts to try to improve the situation. And in Minneapolis, we were able to uh, hire a reform-minded chief who seems to be doing a great job. Got to give uh, Brian O'Hara a lot of credit. We have a commissioner of public safety. In fact, they converted from only a police department to a commission of public safety, which combines police, fire, 911, um, youth violence inter uh, intervention, medical, uh, emergency medical services, and kind of do, does public safety 
as a more holistic thing. So that's a positive development. They've banned no-knock warrants, uh, banned chokeholds. These things are important and helpful. But in terms of the actual numbers nationwide, mm -hmm. we really haven't seen the outcomes that we want. We haven't seen much happening in, in Congress. Congress has not done what it should do. President Biden issued an executive order, which is commendable, uh, but Congress has, has let the George Floyd Justice Policing Act stall, and that is uh, unfortunate, mm -hmm. no question. So, I mean, you know, when people, I know it's easy to just say nothing's happened, everything's happened. Well, a little bit of both, right? I mean, uh, people are responding, local leaders are responding. But one of the most important things is, is that your average juror or citizen is more sensitive to this subject. There was a time when, you know, you could pretty much count on every every doubt being resolved in favor of police. Mm -hmm. uh, and now jurors are open to hear the case. Um, they're listening. We've seen uh, this in the civil uh, arena and in the criminal one. I don't, we, I think the days are gone when just thinking that the juror's gonna quit is, I, I, don't, I don't think that, I think we've, we've entered a new territory. And I also think that it's commendable for a lot of police officers to start speaking out now. I mean, uh, police, police Chief Arredondo mm -hmm. fired those officers. The longest serving Minneapolis police officer, Richard Zimmerman, said, hey, look, this is wrong. We must condemn this. We can't stand by this kind of behavior. I've talked to a lot of different police leaders and rank and file officers who say, look, we need to change the culture. We believe it can change. But if you are trying to tell your supervisor that they need to stop doing something that they're doing, that could ruin your career in law enforcement. How does a more junior officer confront a more senior officer when the more senior officer is doing something that is unconstitutional and inhumane? That's that's something that we've got to work on. That's a cultural issue. But uh, there's a lot of things happening. But to get the actual numbers down, uh, we're still pretty much where we were. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue this conversation with uh, Keith Ellison about his book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. We'll also get you, the listeners, involved in the conversation. Uh, Daniel in Detroit, Glenn in South Park, Zeta in Highland Park, uh, Josh in Beverly Hills. Uh, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and our guest is Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of Minnesota and author of a new book titled Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Uh, Ellison uh, is the person who prosecuted Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Derek Chauvin and several other officers actually uh, in Minneapolis were held responsible for that. Uh, we're talking about how you end, how do you interrupt that cycle of police violence that we've lived with uh, very uh, prolifically here in, in the United States. African-Americans, of course, uh, have their own story about uh, relationships with police and police authority. We want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Give us a call and let us know what you make of the relationships we have with police officers in our communities. Are you someone who sees the police as protecting our communities, or do you feel like uh, there's something to be afraid of in our communities? Are you uh, someone who's experienced police violence or been violated in some way by a police officer? If you're an officer, we'd love to hear from you as well. Talk to us about policing our communities. Also, talk to us about the way you respond when you see other officers stepping out of line. 
a real critical point in all of this is the idea that police too often don't call each other out for inappropriate behavior. The number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's start today with Zita in Highland Park. Zita, what's on your mind? Yeah, well, Zita from Highland Park, thank you again. Beautiful topic. It's very much needed in society. The police is not here to protect and serve. First of all, you have to know the history of the police and who they were and what they were. They originally, they were slave catchers. Mm -hmm. They were the people who would go out and get the slaves and bring them back. So it's like, now it's like we're dealing with as an African-American woman in America. I've been kidnapped by the police. And when I say kidnapped, I mean, I've been minding my own business on the streets in the Pope back in the early 90s. The police have taken me just because I look suspicious to them and arrested me. And I was held in jail for like days and then released for nothing. It's like nothing was ever done about it. A lot of this treatment has happened to me throughout my life in America, in Detroit, Michigan. So, no, the police are not our friends. And you have to be careful when you do encounter them how you have to know how to act. You have to make sure you're not aggressive because, like George Floyd, I'll come from even deeper with that. Malice Green back in mm-hmm. 90, what was it, 92. Mm-hmm. I, was, I lived in that area when they killed Malice Green. So it's like that's what got me involved in fighting against police brutality uh, against black people. So I'm saying to everybody, it's a shame where we are right now with this because you got black cops black police officers who won't even stand up against this type of injustice. So then they wonder why none of us, the people don't like them. So I hope that in America that these type so, of things change because it's a shame what has been going on, yeah. how they've been killing black people. No question. Yeah. Zena, before I go back to, to Keith Ellison, I, I want to have you talk about what you think the solution is. And I don't mean to put you know pressure, all the pressure on you as an individual, as one citizen uh, to try to solve the problem. But, but as somebody who's had... Uh, negative interactions, negative experiences with the police. What what would you what would you think is a reasonable way to to, to fix all of that? I think it's in the training. Like when they're in um, the police academy or whatever, it's like um, ra- racism is a very difficult thing to deal with. It's like we need all hands on deck for this. So it's like all professions. Like when people are to be cops, they need it's it's more than sensitivity training. They have to, I, I really don't know the answer to that question fully, yeah. but something has to be done. And I believe it starts with being in training and the people who are, are um, like authority figures, like the people who are the bosses of those people, they have to, um, it, it's something that they need to go through training to um, sensitize them sure. and just to see if they mentally are able to do the job, which is being asked of them. Yeah. Zena, I really appreciate uh, your call and you sharing your experiences. Uh, Keith, I want to have you react to what she's saying. These are stories we hear in our community all the time about uh, you know people uh, being inappropriately uh, uh, dealt with by police, uh, that, that, that you can be doing almost nothing and end up uh, in, a, in an entanglement with a police officer. Also, the question of training and, and whether that's a solution. Well, certainly training is part of it. I would say this, if you look at the George Floyd matter, what training did the officers need to have that they didn't have Mm -hmm. uh, to just stand up when George Floyd said, I can't breathe? Or what about when he went limp, limp completely and was offering no resistance at all? Not even, he wasn't even saying a word. What about when he didn't have a pulse? What is the training that says, okay, now get up off this person? Now, they did have, all of them had, lots of CPR training. But when George Floyd was completely unresponsive and with no pulse, they did not begin chest compressions. They didn't do anything to intervene with for him medically. You know, you begin to wonder, you know, is training the thing? I think training is very important. But, I mean, a nine-year-old girl was yelling, Get off him, take his pulse. He's not breathing. Nine years old girl, nine year old girl. How come she understood more about what to do than they did? Mm-hmm. The police academy shouldn't make you less aware, less smart. It should make you more smart. It should certainly equip you better to handle a problem than a nine year old child or three 17 year old girls. One of them was Darnella Frazier, who videotaped the whole thing. 
Uh, I mean, what's the training that where you won't allow a trained firefighter to at least administer the medical uh, um, emergency uh, treatment? Who was on the scene? Genevieve Hansen was on the scene and said, I am a firefighter. I'm here to help. Can I help? And they're threatening to arrest her. So, look, I want to be clear. There are a lot of uh, great police officers out there. I've met many. Uh, but, you know, um, I think the before training, there needs to be a realistic concern that if you violate the law, whether you have a badge or not, you are going to be held accountable. And if you violate rules like the duty to intervene, then you're going to be you're going to have to face administrative discipline. The problem is one of impunity. Mm. The problem is. Hey, look, the, our custom and our culture is I do whatever I want to these people and nobody's ever going to say a word about it. That's the custom. That's the culture. When you see Derek Chauvin staring at those people, you know, defiantly uh, refusing to administer aid to George Floyd, you're not seeing a person who's dumb. You're seeing a person who's so sure that they're never going to have to answer to anyone for what they did. Yeah. And so what I think we what we really need is the system needs to say we have one standard of justice. Nobody's above the law. Nobody's beneath the law. Nobody can do whatever they want without any accountability. And there's nobody who you can do whatever you want to them and nobody in the system just doesn't care. We got to have one standard of justice and then you can really use training because there's a lot of training that can be done Um, and a lot of important training. And, And let me just tell you, I do believe we can solve this problem. If you look at Newark, New Jersey, and you look at Camden, New Jersey, those two cities have reduced officer-involved deadly force encounters dramatically. But it's because the mayor and the chief and everybody decided we're going to make these changes. And guess what? They're not paying out police misconduct judgments and lawsuits. They're not looking at um, civil disturbances every few years. They have greater trust. They've gotten more guns off the street. They got more citizen cooperation. So really dealing with this issue will make us, will will, will save lives, protect the budget of the city, and we'll we'll have greater safety for all citizens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zena, uh, again, I really appreciate the call and uh, your candor. Let's go to Josh in Beverly Hills. Josh, what's on your mind? Since the start of this this, uh, segment, this radio station should be a uh, ashamed of itself for the obnoxious misinformation it's spreading. And I want to speak to the persons who fund this station. Listen to the misframing of every single said, thing said by the host. A couple things before we move on to the specific case of George Floyd. Number one, only about a thousand persons are shot and killed by officers in the country every year. And ten of them, roughly, are by persons who are unarmed. That means that all the, the 300 persons cited earlier about the deaths thus far this year, only about three of those persons will have been identified as not having an arm or being a direct threat, threat to the public or the officer at the moment. More people die, more police officers die uh, through violence every year than perpetrators. You're more likely to be killed by being struck by lightning than to be killed by a police officer in this country. The framing of the, uh, or the cultivation that, authors like yourself and announcers like yourself on the radio, we're, conti- we're, we're cultivating an audience of hysterical, misinformed people that repeat these misinformations. Hmm. The idea that any place on the planet at any time in history was less racist than the United States in 2023 is fiction. No place is perfect, but this place has gone the furthest by any measure. On to George Floyd specifically. I noticed that the um, author here didn't make mention of the fact that Mr. Floyd was saying that he couldn't breathe whilst he was in the car by himself. And he was taken out of the car after arrest in order to, um, uh, when he began to, re- began to um, resist his arrest again. That a crowd had gathered around a few police officers, and I'm not excusing Mr. Chauvin. He certainly could have conducted himself in a better fashion to preserve Mr. Floyd's uh, safety. However... When you have a screaming crowd on the street demanding things of the police officer, the police officers are human. They're terrified in these cases. Any one of these screaming people could immediately turn violent and assault, shoot, or otherwise harm these officers. Okay. Okay, Josh. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to cut wait, you wait, off, we, but we we can't have you 
talk the whole show. Uh, and I do want to have Keith address what you're saying. I, I do want to say up front, though, Josh, that the framing that you're talking about for these conversations on this show, especially conversations like this, has to do with not just my outlook on life or my ideology, but the things that I know and have experienced personally. I grew up here in Detroit in the 70s and 80s. And I can tell you as someone who doesn't have a criminal record, that the run-ins that I've had with police as a teenager, especially a teenager driving a car in Detroit in the late 1970s or late 1980s and early 1990s, um, tell me about the ways in which police interact with African-Americans. It's not just about whether they might kill you. It's about whether they might roust you, whether they might uh, assault you, whether they might search your car for no reason. There is a pattern of disparate treatment that I think uh, is undeniable. And look, uh, you're right. This is a country that's made tremendous strides in terms of equality from its beginning to now. Uh, but to say that uh, it is the least racist place on on earth, I think, is uh, a, a bit of hyperbole, and and it diminishes again the experiences that African Americans have. Uh, what you are saying is that uh, our lives don't matter, our truths don't matter, and that's a really disturbing that's a really disturbing response to the things that we're talking about. But I want to give Keith Ellison uh, a chance to respond specifically to what you're talking about, especially with the case of, of George Floyd. Well, let me say it, it is true that George Floyd said inside the car, uh, he's having trouble breathing. He, he had claustrophobia. He told the officers that, but this prosecution really does begin when he's outside and when he very could have been easily could have been put in the recovery position Instead, he was put in a prone position, and it wasn't just Officer Chauvin being on his neck. It was also uh, Officer King pushing on his back and Officer Lane holding his legs and him, his, his hands being behind his back with his chest being the only thing supporting the full weight of all those people. So, you know, that that's where it really does begin. And, and so for the caller, I just want to say, you're right. He did say I'm having trouble breathing. But then what kind of response does, should that evoke? To me, that should be like, OK, why are you having trouble breathing? Let's get a truck here now. Let's put you in the recovery position so that you can regain your breath. Mm -hmm. I mean, police officers deal with people on their worst day. And there has to be some understanding that, you know, uh, George, if, if George Floyd is having a, a medical problem, if he was, he wasn't, by the way, but if he was, maybe the right response is not to put him in a prone position and pile three grown men on top of him. So I'll just say that. Uh, I'll say, too, that there's simply no medical expert by the defense or the prosecution who would support the idea that the crowd is why the officers did not engage in medical in uh, 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 CPR. Mm -hmm. Nobody said that. There, even the defense couldn't find an expert to say that. Because what was the crowd yelling about? They were saying he can't breathe. It was kneeling on his neck. Um, right. They were saying, check his pulse. That's why they were raising their voices. They weren't just yelling for no reason. They were yelling for medical intervention. And so there's that. And I'll also say this. It is true that around 1,000 people a year are killed in, in, in law, by law enforcement. Many of those uh, people who are killed by law enforcement are not killed illegally or unconstitutionally. The police do have the right to use force, even deadly force, to protect themselves and to protect others. So that thousand isn't even, it's not, not all of those are unconstitutional or, or illegal. But I will also say, and this is to your point, these are, it's not an even distribution across all Americans. Right. It's concentrated in certain communities. So if you're not in that community, you may think there's no problem. But if you are in that community, you'll say there's a serious problem. Contrast this last caller from the first one. The first one said there's a real serious problem. Mm -hmm. The second one said there's no problem at all. That's why I'm glad you're doing the show because this is the chance for Michiganders to hear from each other and try, maybe try just a little bit to see the world that the other person lives in 
Because if all we do is say, my world is the only one that matters and in my world, everything's fine or everything's bad, then we never get to the point where we can understand each other and move forward in a positive way. I'll also say this, when a person is a victim of crime by a private individual, that's a horrible experience. That person needs to be investigated and they gotta be prosecuted. When you're the victim of a crime from a private individual, that's a serious matter. But when you are the victim of a crime from a state actor carrying with them the legitimacy of the state, mm -hmm. that's another matter altogether. Now we're talking about, do we live in a democratic society? The Fourth Amendment says there should be un no unreasonable search and seizure. The Fourth Amendment precludes, prohibits unreasonable and arbitrary violence from the government. This is a universal principle. It's not only in the American Constitution, but it is there. So I'll say that our when, when a private citizen does something bad to me, the police are going to arrest them, process them through the courts. What about when the system does something bad to me? We've got to have some levels of accountability there too. So I would just say for both of your callers, please have a little bit of patience for yeah. the person who walked a different path than you did. I mean, that's a really difficult thing, not just in this community, but in this country to get people to understand what the day-to-day -day existence is for African-Americans, uh, the communities that we live in, the problems that we deal with, uh, and the response that we get very frequently from authorities. It is different. It looks different fundamentally. And these are things that we learn as little kids, right? Keith, you and I both grew up in, in Detroit about the same time. Yep. You're, you're not five years old before you understand the difference between black and white in, in other people's eyes. And we do need, uh, we do need people to understand that uh, that's, a, that's not made up, that's not cultivating uh, a, a sense of victimhood or any of that kind of thing. It is real. It is the way every African-American, whether it's Keith Ellison, who's the attorney general of Minnesota, or me, who's the host of this show, or any black man or woman walking the streets, it looks different. Uh, Josh, I do appreciate the call, though. I do appreciate that you uh, that you listen to the show uh, and, and continue to participate in the conversation. That is uh, an important part of what we're doing here. All right, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to come back, uh, continue talking with uh, Keith Ellison, who's the Minnesota Attorney General. We're also going to add another voice to the conversation. Uh, we're going to talk a little about what's going on in Washtenaw County, where they are experimenting with co-responders, uh, mental health workers who are going with police officers and sometimes without police officers to go and respond to uh, calls. Uh, stay with us. Stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019, and stay with us on social. Go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Our guest is Keith Ellison, Minnesota's Attorney General, author of a new book titled Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, about his prosecution of Derek Chauvin and other police officers in Minneapolis for their murder of George Floyd in 2020. We're talking about how you interrupt that cycle. Uh, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social as well. I also want to introduce another uh, voice to the conversation. Uh, Trish Cortez is executive director of Washtenaw County Community Mental Health, and her department works with the county's sheriff to deploy mental health workers along alongside police officers to respond to and to respond to public calls without the police. Uh, Trish Cortez, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah. So, Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're here because I think uh, you have an important uh, dimension to add to this conversation. Uh, let's talk about the idea of sending mental health responders into the field. How did that come about in Washtenaw County, and how's that working? 
So in, uh, we started about 2011. We had a smaller team, primarily of social workers, that uh, would respond in the community to um, when we were actually getting phone calls around a, uh, an apparent mental health crisis. And our team at that time, the social workers would go out, respond, kind of try to resolve the, you know, the, the issue at hand and then offer more social supports and resources. Since that time, we've really been able to build out that team um, starting in about 2018 um, and really expand that team beyond just the social workers, but to also be able to do crisis response plus stabilization, which has been a real game changer for us, where we can not only address the crisis in that moment, but then also uh, provide some follow-up. Um, and, and so that, uh, that's where we're at today. Um, and we also, and um, as we'll talk more about um, how we do that with law enforcement. Yeah. The, the, the partnering with law enforcement is something that I think we're, we're seeing a lot of communities think about um uh, talk about how how what effect that's having in washington on police response itself that that you know i mean police are are trained to deal with certain things they are not trained to deal with mental health does having somebody there who is a mental health professional make a difference for the person that they're responding to Absolutely. So typically when we respond with law enforcement, um, what's, what, what has been happening historically in the sheriff's office and CMH have got a current pilot that's you know, relatively new, but typically what occurs is law enforcement um, will actually be call us to go and coordinate a response mm-hmm. at the location that they're at. So what happens the majority of the time is a community member um, we'll call 911. 911 will dispatch law enforcement to that location. And when the officer arrives at that location, they're recognizing that there is uh, a mental health issue at hand, and they will actually call us and ask us to go out and respond with them. Um, and that's what um, our typical law enforcement coordinated response looks like. It, are, are you seeing an effect with the people that are that are being uh, uh, responded to by, by law enforcement when there is a mental health worker there? I know that may be hard to, to quantify, but I'm trying to get some sense of how different this looks than when police oh, respond on their own. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, we've done this work here in Washington County for some time, and the vast majority of our uh, law enforcement officers have been trained in how to manage a mental health crisis which then really just allows that law enforcement uh, individual, especially because if there is no crime being committed, they, they can leave the scene. And we, from there, then um, can engage them in mental health services, substance abuse services, or whatever support that individual may need. So absolutely, there's, um, you know, there, there, we definitely have data um, that, that shows that law enforcement uh, here in Washington County are really able to just refer on individuals experiencing a mental health condition or crisis to us and we kind of take it over from there yeah uh keith ellison i want to bring you back into the conversation here and have you talk just about this as a solution the role that it might play in breaking this cycle of police violence hey you know let me just commend uh your your work ma'am this is what my idea of helping to break the wheel right this is how we get there when I mentioned a little earlier that when I became the attorney general in Minnesota, me and the commissioner of public safety of Minnesota uh, pulled together a task force on reducing deadly force encounters involving police. Uh, And one of the things we came up with is that a very high percentage of the officer involved deaths involve people in a mental health crisis and that the officers just, they didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know what to do. They, and, and things sometimes went awry uh, and uh, if we had people who were trained mental health professionals, it might really improve outcomes. And you know what? Uh, the city of St. Paul is using it. The city of Minneapolis is too. Washington County, I'm so glad to hear is doing it. And I think that you are really onto something. And I hope you will continue 
And I hope you'll write about what you find, because I think there's a lot of jurisdictions across the country Mm -hmm. that are looking for answers. And this is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, Let's go next to Mary in southwest Detroit. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, Hi, Steve. I'm so glad that you brought up your growing up years Mm -hmm. because I'm here in southwest Detroit. My son was killed, uh, not by the police officer, but what came about was nothing. It was like one less Mexican in Southwest Detroit. Mm. Um, I'm sorry about that, Mary. I've had a lot of experiences. And this this was around the time you were growing up, by the way. And In fact, I think there were 600 murders we had uh, that was that period of time mm-hmm. when there was a very high murder rate mm-hmm. um but my experience as a mother of mexican boys um i was so frightened every time they walked out the door because of the police mm. not in in those days it was cash flow pass my by the way my sons were not part of the cash flow posse mm. or but in those days, the fear was not the, the gangbangers, it was the police. And I've, I've worked with, for the recreation department, so I, I, I know a lot of the young people in the neighborhood. And some of the experiences they've gone through, like one boy who said he had spit on the sidewalk, the police came and he was Mexican, too, um, the cops came out of the car and said, hey, you spitting at us? And took him and slammed his head against the, the yeah. police car. Yeah. And uh, his two front teeth were broken out. Mary, um, I, Mary And I, I, can, I can tell you, my other son uh, went out the back door down the alley to his, to his um, friend's house that lives, lives down the alley and went around the front. Well, the police came and picked him up. In fact, his his friend said, "I don't know. They got they got your son out, and uh, the cops have your son. I don't know, you know why." Right. Well, a paper boy had gotten robbed. My son is six feet six one, maybe. He has black hair, and he were, he had, at the time he had a brown leather jacket. Well, uh, the paper boy had gotten robbed by a, a and this, by the way. Um, yeah. Mary, Mary I, I think I get the, the gist of what you're getting at here, that they just picked your son up because uh, they thought he looked like somebody that had done something. And I don't want to cut you off, but I do need to, to get back to our guest to respond to this. Uh, um, Keith, th- that history is so important. And the, the, yeah. the length of time that we have been dealing with this in this community in particular and that you and I grew up in, uh, these are important stories uh, to, to try to get yeah, out. Yeah, Mary's. Mary's story is very important, and I thank you for for her for sharing it and you for taking it. I mean, here's the bottom line. If we can just allow ourselves a little bit of historical reference. You know, African-Americans were in slavery from 1619 to 1865. That's 246 years. Jim Crow for another 100 years. And then we've only lived in 60 years of, of, of anything else, and what that is is disparities in every aspect of American life. Mary, her family is uh, Latino. I mean, the history of Latino people in America is northern Mexico was decapitated mm-hmm. in 1841. Mm-hmm. The, the Texas Rangers, you know, were attacked, you know, Mexican-Americans relentlessly. When Brown versus Board of Education was heard, there were companion cases in Los Angeles involving segregation against Mexican people. So, you know, and then we, and then Japanese internment, all these things we have, this is our nation. We love our country. We're proud of it, but we can't act like everything's fine. It's over and it's not over, you know, and we've just got to commit ourselves to a better America, which we can have if we're willing to have the courage to have the conversation, um, you know, and, and to not shoot the messenger either, by the way, I mean, when you were talking a moment ago, I mean, I, th- I thought it was interesting that, you know, that one caller uh, directed a certain degree of critique at your framing of the conversation. And I thought to myself that that was unfortunate because all you're trying to do is bring forth 
a conversation for our discussion, right. a serious problem which needs solutions. Mm. And I really do hope that as a community, we will tolerate uncomfortable dialogue, not leap to the conclusion that I'm right, you're wrong, and that's it. Um, I think that it, I think that this service you're providing to us is really important, and I want to thank you for it. No, I, I absolutely love this hour every day where we get to have these kind of conversations and listen to each other and and learn from each other. Okay, uh, Keith Ellison, Attorney General of Minnesota and author of Break the Wheel, Ending the Police, uh, End of the Cycle of Police Violence. Always great to catch up with you, man, and uh, I really appreciate you being here. We'll see you soon, man. Yes, absolutely. Also, uh, Trish Cortez, Executive Director of Washtenaw County Community Mental Health. Really great to have you here to learn about what's going on in Washtenaw County as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Also, of course, thanks to our listeners, uh, not just for being here, but for participating in our conversation. Sometimes it gets a little tense. Sometimes we get after each other a little bit, but that is what we're after here on Detroit Today is an actual exchange, an honest exchange of our ideas and experiences. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Come back tomorrow when we'll talk about what work looks like when it's not an identity, but it's simply something you're just doing. It's just good enough. We'll talk again tomorrow.